Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 22, recorded on May 7th. The Cloud Pod increases listener limit to 1 million. Welcome back to the Cloud Pod for another exciting episode here on this lovely evening. Uh, how's it going, guys? Going well. It's been a long week. I'm looking forward to this weekend. Uh, yes, indeed. Well, we uh, we have an action-packed day of news. There was a couple summits this week or conferences. Google uh, I.O. was this week. We had uh, Microsoft Build for their developer conference, and I think there was the Red Hat conference. So tons of things happening this week, lots to cover, and so we should probably just get right into it tonight. Awesome. Uh, so first of all, let's uh, talk about a little bit of follow-up. So last week we talked about uh, VMware going uh, with a partnership with Azure to allow you to deploy VMware uh, in their cloud natively, uh, which was just an interesting article. And you know, we talked a lot about how it's kind of a uh, two rivals kind of coming together as frenemies uh, with Hyper-V versus VMware and some of the other things that you know, Azure was doing apparently around, uh, they had actually partnered with third parties to develop uh, VMware technology on top of Azure in the past. And so one of the things we missed last week was that this was apparently uh, them now making nice on VMware and making this officially supported without a third party in the middle. Uh, but there was some interesting uh, analysis that came up afterwards from Silicon Angle uh, or Business Insider. And basically uh, the CEO in the Q&A session afterwards was basically talking about that uh, VMware's heart still belonged to Amazon and saying that Amazon is still its primary cloud partner and that this is uh, an interest of keeping Microsoft away from the partners network uh, for deploying VMware on their cloud. So interesting that, you know, they had this big press, uh, splashy press release last week. They still feel that Amazon is their primary partner. Yeah, it seems like the relationship with Azure is more of a business partnership, whereas the relationship with Amazon is, uh, seems more sort of based in technology. One's just a transaction, the other one's strategic. Yeah. We will see where they go. I expect we'll see similar things with Google. I expect we'll see that with Oracle. Um, you know, it's it's a good way for VMware to kind of keep in you know in the market for any cloud provider. But there are some rumors uh, that they may be uh, picking up uh, Docker at some time in the future, which I'm interested to see if that ever goes that way. So, moving on to main show topics. Uh, so the AWS Transit Gateway and Direct Connect uh, can now be used to centralize and streamline your network connectivity. Um, this is an announcement that now Transit Gateway finally supports uh, the Direct Connect service. It's available in all of the U.S. regions, and you can have communications up to 10 gigabits uh, of throughput through the new Transit Gateway. This is a big improvement, simplifies your network infrastructure, consolidates it, and provides connectivity to over 90 Direct Connect uh, partners and locations across the world as well. Wow, that's great. I'm, I'm uh, really looking forward to being able to use this. So uh, of all the checklist items that you are waiting for on Transit Gateway, how many how many more do they need to cross before it becomes viable? I really only have one left now, which is the cross-region support. Right now, cross-region has to kind of egress into either my own IPsec tunnels or transit through Direct Connect to our data center across the country and then back out Direct Connect. So it's, pretty, it's a pretty long trip around. I think a native solution to that would make Transit Gateway probably the best network infrastructure that any hyperscale has to offer for me i think it's around uh, you know a lot of people look uh, obviously connect we want connectivity to be simple but a lot of the um asks and what are some of the reasons people uh, built their own transit gateway was to get um, shoehorn a layer 7 device in between uh, to do uh, network inspection logging etc so that piece that that more advanced um routing and security, as well as the uh, 
uh, logging, I think, are still uh, short of some uh, security groups requirements. Amazon do not support security groups through Transit Gateway yet, although I'm told that it's on the roadmap. Um, but the problem with putting a layer 7 device in is that all of a sudden you, you're egressing out into the slow world of EC2, and then you have the bandwidth constraints of, 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 um, of those hosts. Um, I don't know, it's, it's it's a shame to do that, really. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully AWS will come up with their own solution. Yeah, I mean, we had customers who were, uh, who were effectively hairpinning back to the data center just to get um, A6 speed firewall performance so i mean you get that wire if they just integrate that wire speed um network appliance uh, in then i think uh we're golden yeah yeah i'm very familiar with that hairpin model that's uh, pretty common anytime you're dealing with multiple accounts or multiple regions and needing to transverse traffic between them uh as really wasn't an option to do that before without peering or uh, as your only viable choice it's great if you if your data center is close to the Amazon region that you want to work from though. I mean, otherwise it's at least an additional 50, 60, 70 milliseconds of latency. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you mentioned uh, that this is one of the better hyperscaler solutions. I, don't, I, I would beg to differ. I, uh, one of the labs I did at the Google conference for next was the, the VPC lab. Um, Cause I was curious how it was different uh, on the Google stuff. And it was amazing to me how after like 10 clicks, I basically had full, inter-region transfer routing uh, available to me. I could ping a host in US, uh, you know, in Europe from US and without any major work, no additional configuration, it just happened. And I didn't have to do anything magical about it. So, you know, this is, a, this is definitely a great solution. Uh, but, you know, even in a single account region or account barrier of AWS, there's a lot they could do to simplify the networking to make it less, uh, less opaque and a, less, a lot less uh, twitchy. Well, there's two sides to that coin, though, because while you think it's great and really easy to make connectivity between different regions and different VPCs, the other side of that is I don't want that. I want segregation of of, uh, of my, my regions for security purposes. And so what do I have to do to turn that off again? That said, look at the Terraform it takes to set up a multi-region network in Google, just the number of resources versus the Terraform it takes to do it on AWS. Over 10x, maybe 100x the resources. More, more for Google than Amazon? No, for Amazon. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, I misunderstood. I was like, wow, no, I'm yeah. working with that with that crap right now. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on here to uh, Amazon Snowball Edge has now added a new block storage option for your edge computing workloads. Um, so this is basically if you need to run an EC2 workload or basically a VMware instance essentially on premise uh, to an EBS volume, you can now mount that from your Snowball Edge. Um, so this allows you to provide high-performance SSD disk directly off of Snowball to a high, a low-latency application, um, or you can use a lower-capacity HD uh, optimized volumes to provide the same thing. Uh, this can now be done on your data center or on your workload there, and then at the cutover point where you're shipping that Snowball back, uh, you basically turn off your VM, ship this whole system to Amazon, and now you have those as EBS volumes on the other side, um, so you don't have to do the conversion from S3 to EBS. I would think you could do a little lot. Uh data transformation along the way too. Well, for sure, with Snowball uh, Lambda on the edge, you could definitely do some data transformation, some encryption, different things there that are, are all available to you in the edge. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting to me how 
they continue to basically give you a very nice storage option in your data center that you don't have to pay a lot of money for. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, there's gotta be. A, I'm sure there's customers out there who are just sitting on these snowballs in their data center, saying, "Well, this is free storage. I can just use it for basically, you know, cheap dollars on the, you know, just pay the fee every day that they keep it." I think I love the most about the snowballs is um, like that instead of having to print out a UPS label or FedEx label, they have the, you know the e-ink, basically Kindle display, like bolted on the front of the thing, and when it's time to ship it back, it also refreshes the display to show the shipping label. <laughs> that's just a, that's a t- technology solving or could be just a really simple problem, but yeah, I guess not everyone has label printers, but it looks pretty neat. You, I wonder if this, a lot of these advancements they're doing to the snowball are really in preparation for outposts, right? Like providing EBS storage out of it, providing Lambda on the edge. They're kind of giving, you're kind of filling some of those very basic use cases that people might have for an outpost without the cost or outlay of an outpost type of configuration. Definitely for their work on the software, it's it's a good test platform without having to deploy a whole outpost. But after the after the announcement at reInvent for outposts, I I uh, spoke to some people who know about that, and apparently it's going to be different hardware. It's not based on Snowball. I definitely agree. With you. The software side is the part that matters. And if yeah. I can put this thing in someone's data center and I can control it and I can configure it from the Amazon console, that's all software you want to test anyways before you ship out these outposts. So it makes yeah. sense. I'm wondering how many uh, Snowballs are going to end up on the Jeff Bezos' uh, rocket on the moon. <laughs> first data center on the moon. That's going to that's gonna be their, their thing, isn't it? It's like the first Amazon outpost on the moon. They're going to open up the Amazon moon region. Yeah. <laughs> and then you'll need Mars for DR. <laughs> Low latency networking. It's yeah. not going to happen. <laughs> Still haven't quite figured out that speed of light problem. Hey, everyone. Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod foghorn the promise of cloud delivered so moving on amazon x-ray has added a new uh analytics capability allows you to debug and analyze distributed applications interactively Um, this is a new portal inside the aws console that takes your x-ray traces uh, basically puts them together into an end-to-end view and so you can see how your components are interacting with each other how the transaction passed from uh, microservice to microservice and allows you to do this all dynamically and quickly so you can simplify your application troubleshooting it looks beautiful too oh it's it looks super sexy in the uh, the screenshots you know i'm glad to see x-ray continuing to develop now because i was when they first announced it i was like tracing it sounds really cool very similar to apm are they going to pivot into that direction and they have you know when i i've talked to some people at amazon they haven't said that that's part of their strategy but things like this analytics and and the part, you know how tracing is maturing in the market makes me think that this is more of a reality than i realize dynamically analyzing application performance i would say apm is uh got to be the target yeah, and then in, in a couple of months' time, it'll be bolt-on machine learning. In a couple of months' time, it will be um, CloudWatch alerts based on uh, you know, predictive patterns. It's interesting to me how Amazon is continuing to go after things that their customers are probably telling them are very expensive or they're not cloud-friendly or they're not native to what they're doing. Um, you, know, you saw it with Elasticsearch. You saw it with uh, some of the 
blockchain stuff, you know, they're developing these these very high level services that have a very specific function or use case that customers probably don't want to pay for. And so, you know, if the customers are saying this is a really great solution, but it's really expensive on AWS, AWS looks at that and says, hmm, we can do it cheaper or better. And then they, they're kind of slowly eating out some of these major enterprise software plays. It's really interesting strategy. Well, I guess if you're not paying uh, AppDynamics or, or anybody else, it's all more money you got to spend on NAND gateways. <laughs> well, and you can and you can send that money on Amazon instead <laughs> yeah. of on AppDynamics. Right. So either way, either way, they're winning. They're going to get it either. Yeah, going to get it either way. It is amazing how much basically free software you get in exchange for agreeing to use their compute. It's actually pretty impressive how full featured they actually are when they ship these things too. Because I, at uh, the Microsoft Build conference, they announced some new transcript features, and I was watching the demo of it. And I was like, "Wow, that looks really great! I want to play with that." And so I jumped into my Azure console and I went to go find where this is at, which it was a nightmare to find because their portal's awful. And then I finally get there, and it's like, "Well, you enable this API, then you have to go into your SDK of your software and write a bunch of code." And I was like, "Ugh, this isn't as plug and play as I hoped it would be." Uh, and so I, I kind of moved on because I didn't have the time for that kind of level of project. Yeah, but, they, need, uh, they need a Jeff Barr for Azure. They really do. <laughs> uh, the other thing that kind of struck me, actually, bringing up Jeff Barr, and you know, when you talk about Amazon Web Services or you talk about Google Cloud, you know, there's there's very key individuals who you know lead those business units, right? So TK at, at Google, you've got Jeff, uh, or sorry, not Jeff, uh, you got Andy Jassy at AWS, and then then they have a public facing blog presence with Jeff Barr. Who's that person at Azure? Who's the who's the main person on top of Azure at the end of the day? Who's kind of that person like TK or like Andy? Is there really that, or is it all up to Satya? I think you just answered that question. I mean, Satya's running a very large, multi-billion-dollar yeah. company, so it's it's a little weird that he's the the face of the Azure platform when you think there'd be maybe another executive who's driving the main drive main roadmap of it. Yeah, maybe you'll see a job posting go up after we release this podcast. <laughs> but but they have salespeople. I mean, I'm sure there's a per, I'm sure there's a person already. I just it, it's not a person that you see very often, and so yeah. it's just it's interesting. Uh, I'm sure it's a Google search away. I could get to an answer, but it's it just one of those things that was kind of struck me as you know both Amazon and Google have these really big names who kind of come in and, and own the cloud strategy, and Azure probably has someone doing that, and I just don't know who it is. Transit Gateway now can move your site to site VPN connections from the VPG or the Virtual Private Gateway. Uh, allowing you to do that with a click of a button versus reconfiguring your entire VPN uh, to move to the transit gateway. Uh, I am super happy to see this feature. Uh, the thought of having to redeploy several hundred VPN tunnels uh, to move to transit gateway was not really appealing to me. So this is a, this is a nice change. On the surface, it seems like it's super useful, but really, um, if you're going to move to transit gateway, then the whole point is to eliminate 199 of the 200 VPNs anyway. And the one that's remaining now has a completely different configuration because instead of routing for just one VPC, it's routing for all the VPCs into the gateway. So it's maybe there are some people where they where this will be useful, where it's too much too burdensome to, to make a change to one VPN configuration. Or it's a migration. Uh, there there is a or maybe there is a migration process that makes that this ends up making it super easy. I think the motivation here is not to be super easy for the customer. I think the motivation here is, hey, let's get everyone off these old, you know, these six-year-old um, uh, virtual private gateways with terrible bandwidth um, constraints, and let's get them moved over to the transit gateway, which now supports multipathing and everything else you know, to, to get a better throughput. I, I think this is probably the beginning of the end for VPGs. 
there are several businesses where you know doing changes are is, is very difficult or complicated or takes a lot of time. You know, looking at banking, for example, uh, you know banks typically have a change window for especially for something like a VPN that requires security approvals and requires you know months of planning and then the implementation of the VPN tunnel that can take several months. And so, if you're a provider to banks or a provider to other companies in that in that window. You know the ability to move to transit gateways now is severely hampered by the fact that your customers' change windows are very long, and so if this if this can now simplify that scenario for you, then this is actually a pretty nice thing. I agree with you on if it's your company's networks that you're connecting together, this probably isn't as much of a concern, uh, but I definitely see the use case in several SaaS companies where this type of thing would have prevented them from moving to transit gateway for probably a year or more, where now they can be able to do it within a few maintenance windows. Very good point. Yeah, it's the uh, the curse of uh, you know not everyone has your exact scenario, unfortunately. And so, uh, you know, as, as slow as some of your processes feel in a business, sometimes other companies have much much worse, slower processes that you have to address. Amazon S3 has introduced a new S3 batch operation for object management. Uh, this was a preview of this was announced at reInvent 2018, but now it's generally available. Uh, I didn't have a chance to look into this at reInvent, so I, I thought I'd add to the show notes just to talk about it a little bit. So basically, if you have a several billion objects in a bucket and you need to be able to move them to another bucket or you need to re-encrypt them or change something, um, that operation had to be instrumented in your own code as a script or some type of set of API calls. Um, and that could then take several hours to complete, days, months, years to complete in many cases. Uh, but now with the new S3 batch operation, you can now basically build out the process. If I'm changing the encryption key, for example, I set that up, I point uh, the S3 batch service at it and it fires off X number of Lambda functions to handle that transaction and moves the data um, as I requested. Uh, and it scales out infinitely in the Lambda space as long as you have the IP addresses. Uh, and it handles all of the retries, tracks progress over time, and sends you notifications and generates pretty reports uh, to tell you all the things that it did. Yeah, it's neat. I remember looking at it back in uh, November or December. Um, I kind of figured they built this so that they could get the, um, it, you know, when you enable replication between buckets, it only replicates new objects, not existing objects. I figured they'd, they'd actually built this to to solve that problem so that you could turn on replication and it would sync them up first and then start replicating the new things. But um, yeah, it's a nightmare to, to page through if you've got millions or tens of millions of objects in S3 to, to page through um, every single one to make, keep track of which ones you've processed and which ones you haven't. It's um, definitely, definitely time consuming. So this is awesome. Yeah, this is how a serverless cloud storage uh, offering should work, right? These, these types of services can get bolted on and add instant value, uh, do things you just can't do otherwise without it. What's it cost like? I mean, do they still charge you the regular price for, for getting put operations or um, do you get some kind of discount for doing it through batch? I believe you do get some discounts by going through batch, but uh, I didn't look at the exact pricing, but it, it definitely uh, has some advantages and they understand that you're doing this function through the batch process, you get some, some price discounts. Yeah. And it's twenty five cents per job, plus the plus the cost of the <laughs> lambda functions and all that. So. Yeah, one one dollar per million object operations performed. Oh wow, that's pretty nice though. I mean, you could that's a pretty easy way to price out your billion object uh, job. Imagine being the person responsible for setting the prices for some of these things. I mean, like even Route fifty three queries, it's you know it's pennies for for millions of operations. Like, how do they? figure that out is it some fraction of cpu time plus the cost of the bandwidth to serve the request or like there doesn't seem like there's any margin in a, in a price like that 
I bet there is, if, given the fact that they're making like 23% net income. Uh, yeah. There's some margin somewhere. Yeah, 40%. <laughs> well, maybe the, maybe the margin is in storage, not not in the uh, not in the tools around storage. Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that 40% year over year is is uh, definitely a sign that they're doing something right. Yeah. Also, it's a it enables other things like compliance, right? So if you if you had to rotate your compliance encryption keys annually or every three years or whatever your policy says. And you, you know, the answer to that is that now we need to run this batch script process that's going to take several months. It actually causes other problems, but they also don't want to make it free because they don't want people just doing things without any thought to it because it has a, a tax on their system. But it enables their story around encryption. So maybe it's something that in this particular case, it, it doesn't make a lot of margin, but it enables security teams to actually move their data to the cloud without having that concern. And now it's worth the, it's worth the small hit to margin to make that happen. Uh, Azure had a outage uh, to start out the month. Major activity issues between Office 365, Dynamics 365, Azure DevOps Service, and of course Azure itself. Uh, it lasted from about 19.30 UTC to about 22.35. Uh, they have released their RCA on this. Uh, and apparently as part of a plan- planned maintenance activity, Microsoft engineers executed a configuration change to update one of the name servers for DNS zones used to reach several Microsoft services, including Azure Storage and Azure SQL Database. Uh, the failure in this uh, occurred when one of the servers did not get the update properly, and the uh, 25% of the following DNS queries resulted in a blank uh, domain zone, uh, which caused them lots of problems. So not a good outage, but uh, they did not mention that anyone had any Azure uh, SQL data loss this time around. So at least they fixed that issue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's always difficult when you make DNS changes like this to, to, to compare old zones and new zones. There's not really any good tooling to do. Some, I mean, if you have a flat zone file, uh, you know, from, from bind, if you're still running bind or something, then that's one thing you can just compare the files and make sure they're the same. But with with these new services, with uh, you know a, a call per record, it's it's pretty difficult, or very time consuming. But the the thing I thought was funniest about this is that the the next steps was to you know to stop this happening again, was to improve DNS namespace to better allow for staged rollouts of changes. I mean, the, DNS couldn't be better already at um, at having a namespace that supports that kind of thing. I mean, you move one zone at a time. They they moved an entire bunch of stuff. And uh, they could have done it more slowly. Yeah, I did. I did find there other follow up here. This pre-execution modeling to accurately predict the outcome of the change and detect potential problems for execution it sounds like very machine learning. Like we're going to model out the 18 million ways that we could do this change, and we're going to find the one way that it won't break everything, and that's the one we're going to build. Um, it's very, uh, very Avengers based at this moment. Isn't, isn't pre-execution modeling what risk management is supposed to do when they have their their cab meeting and say, "Hey, we're going to make this change. Does anyone have any problems?" Yeah, like, I mean, how how well does that work for you in most change processes? Uh, I think a rubber stamp is is the uh, the phrase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I, yeah, but it was funny. The very first thing I I thought when I saw this DNS outage, I was like, oh, it must be CenturyLink again. <laughs> yeah. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, was this a migration away from CenturyLink? I mean, it's very possible. Ooh, it was part it, of yeah. a part of their corrective actions from the last DNS issue. Yeah, maybe. I'm, I'm, I'm suspicious. I don't know. When there's an outage, I'm I'm pretty happy when this is why they had an outage. Out of you know, you'll never get rid of all human mistakes. Uh, if it happened during a change, and it looks like a pretty uh, decently major change, especially if that was the reason, um, and it was relatively short and easy to identify and roll back. Um, I mean, those kind of things are going to happen, and you just don't want those ones. Oh, that was 
that was weird. We're, we're not sure why it happened, and uh, we're hoping it doesn't happen again. Well, it's a, it's Azure too, so it must have affected what, like two, three customers. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Uh, low blow, uh, but the low low blow. But uh, you know, I, I always feel bad on any type of these, any type of these outages. You know, because you know, there's some poor SRE people who are frantically working through trying to solve whatever happened, and it just always reminds you that you know, even even the biggest companies can have these type of issues too. And so, you know, next time your boss is upset with you about the outage that happened over the weekend, be like, well, you know, <laughs> we have you know, maybe a fraction of the staff that Microsoft does, and yet they still make these type of mistakes. It always does make you feel better. Yeah, ultimately, it's still one person pressing the button. <laughs> or copying and pasting the script into the terminal or whatever the case may be. Exactly right. All right. Uh, Azure, at their build conference, uh, announced their new fully managed blockchain service. Uh, this ties in nicely to Jonathan's prediction about blockchain uh, at the beginning of the year. Uh, Azure Blockchain Service is a fully managed blockchain service that simplifies the formation, management, and governance of consortium blockchain networks uh, so businesses can focus on the workflow logic and application development. Uh, it is in preview today and hopes to GA later this year. Uh, they announced this with a partnership with JPMC, who's making their Quorum uh, protocol, which is their first ledger available uh, based on the Ethereum protocol uh, on this platform. So already has a first customer adopter, and they are continuing to build this out. Isn't it, I mean I, I know this is my my prediction, and then uh, after we realized that Google weren't going to do it for numerous reasons, we, we sort of like belittled the idea slightly. And but but isn't the point of blockchain that it's distributed? So how does it make any sense to to take a distributed ledger and then have somebody run it for you centrally? Well, I mean, it seems to be. I mean, even Amazon did the same thing. With the yeah, I just don't. I don't get how it, how, how is it still distributed at that point. It, it isn't, but that's, the problem is no one has figured out how to regulate and hold governance over a distributed model, and so the the step gap is let's do the centralized model, um, and then I think it's a question of you know does that then lead into a distributed uh, authority? But uh, you know it is definitely a big question. But this is a big part of what Ethereum is built around was a more centralized uh, ledger technology, uh, more based on contracts between companies versus. Uh, pure crowd-based uh, val validations. Yeah, and I, I mean, I suppose it could be decentralized in that they could run, you could run a single blockchain um, in multiple regions, multiple data centers. That so distributed for the purposes of, of resilience, uh, if not for the purposes of um, you know seizing control of the network by owning enough nodes, because really that that was that was what blockchain was built for. Some additional stuff around Azure Intelligent Edge innovation uh, across data, IoT, and mixed reality devices. Uh, so this was three new announcements around uh, Azure SQL Database Edge, the HoloLens 2 Development Edition, and the IoT Plug and Play solution. Uh, so let's start with the Database Edge first. So this is a uh, performance, secure, and easy-to-manage SQL engine, uh, which is based on SQL Server, uh, and this supports ARM and x64-based interactive devices and edge gateways. So this is basically a SQL Server-compliant database that allows you to connect it uh, into an application running on a mobile device, so Android or iOS or IoT device. Uh, you can handle all your transactions there. Then when you get connectivity back to the system, um, it can stream those changes back up to the core cloud offering. Um, this is fully encrypted, uh, data at rest and in motion, and it does support uh, most of the major SQL Server technologies like BI tooling. The uh, next one was the HoloLens 2 Development Edition. This is uh, expanding the Mixed Reality Developer Program. The new 
Developer Edition brings all the tools together for a developer. Uh, so you get the new HoloLens 2 Mixed Reality device to play with, uh, $500 in Azure credits, and a three-month trial of Unity Pro and the Unity Pixies uh, plugin for CAD drawings. Uh, so this is a bunch of new developments uh, tying this all into the Azure ecosystem, and so now you can get your HoloLens development uh, on for hopefully a major public release of HoloLens sometime in the next 12 to 18 months. Yeah, I haven't even seen the first HoloLens other than HoloLens 2, but this is it's cool. It's coming along. Have you seen any commercial apps for mixed reality? Not really. I mean, at Google I.O., there was some definitely interesting augmented reality, um, like wayfinding type solutions for mapping technologies. Um, that if you could put that into like something like Google Glass or into a HoloLens, then you could overlay on top of the real world. Um, that's definitely there. But, you know, we talked about Azure anchor points that they announced a while back. Um, there's definitely a lot of development happening in this space and people of interest that are trying to do things. But until this product really hits mainstream market, uh, it's really hard to see what the real applications are going to be uh, beyond the military and the development edition stuff. Yeah, the one thing I've heard a little bit about uh, getting traction is uh, education in this area, especially for, um, I think, physical jobs like uh, like trades. We are surging in yes. simulations of things. Yes. I've also seen it in use in... Um, in the like, cosmetics, you know, you walk into the cosmetics place and sit and stand in front of the iPad and change your eye color, change oh, yeah. your hair color, that kind of thing. I've seen some really, really well integrated uh, augmented reality stuff for cosmetics. I mean, that's that's the perfect use case for it, really. Yeah, right. It's in three years or five years. I'm going to be shocked that I couldn't think of all the things that we're now living with that we couldn't live without. <laughs> And then the third one I mentioned was the IoT plug and play. Uh, so apparently one of the biggest challenges in connecting disparate IoT solutions together is how do you connect them all together to the cloud and uh, due to their heterogeneous nature of the device itself uh, with different form factors, processing capabilities, operating systems, memory, and, and uh, hardware devices. Uh, so this is basically a very simple way to now make those IoT devices all talk to the Azure cloud. Uh, and they have a bunch of partners who've come in on this with them, including Compal, Kyocera, and ST Microelectronics. I don't know how I feel about Microsoft building another plug-and-play solution based on how well Windows plug-and-play works, <laughs> but uh, if it works better for IoT, I guess that's a good thing. So this is this is kind of like Amazon's green grass for, for Azure, by, by yes. the sound of it, basically. Basically, that's what it is. I don't know, man. Plug-and-play was way better than doing the little dip switches on the boards. As long as it worked, it was great. <laughs> but when it didn't work, it was awful. Azure now has also built out several new AI capabilities for developers and organizations. Uh, this includes three new announcements around automated machine learning user interface, the zero-code visual interface, and the Azure machine learning notebooks. Uh, these new capabilities allow you to rapidly build out uh, machine learning operations and DevOps capabilities, uh, allow you to visually design them with a, a drag-and-drop builder, and provide uh, the tooling capabilities for your new FPGAs that are coming out in the market. But I want everything as code, and now they want to make me do something with zero code. Well, that apparently is the future of all cloud is low code required. Low code? <laughs> you know, minimal coding solutions are where it's at apparently in the investment space. And then uh, they also released a new blog post on their deep dive into their new Azure cognitive services they released at Build. Uh, this is uh, several new services in preview and or in GA. Uh, the first one is the personalizer, which creates uh, personalized user experiences. A conversation transcription service, which I mentioned earlier, which uh, tra transcribes in-person meetings in real time. 
The form recognizer, uh, which automates data entry, which is very similar to what both Google and AWS have announced. And then an ink recognizer to a, a lock the potential of digital inked content. They also provide several new container-based AI models for speech-to-text and text-to-speech capabilities, anomaly detection, and form recognition. Uh, and they have made generally available the neural text-to-speech, the computer vision reading, and the text analytics named entity recognition solution. So at this point, are they like six months behind AWS and some of these features? Uh, I'd say so. I, I mean, they're, I'd say they're probably about six months behind Google, and Google's probably about three to four months behind AWS. Yeah. The, the use of FPGAs to, to help run their infrastructure is very nitro-sounding and... Um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it makes sense that they're all going to converge to an optimal solution. I do like the Azure. I mean, the old Azure uh, console, web console, was, was terrible. But some of the some of the new UIs are built for some, especially the data tools, uh, really nice to use. I don't have a problem with a business person dr- dragging and dropping stuff to build a model. Uh, as far as like going back to what Peter was saying about doing everything as code. Yeah, I'm definitely glad to see the investment in machine learning and AI. And the more of these solutions you can pick up out of the box that having to build, I think is going to be a win for companies. So. Um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely interested to see that not only has Amazon released TextTract and then Google released Document AI, but now we've got Azure announcing Form Recognizer and Ink Recognizer to basically do the same thing. So everyone's really tracing down this, this document recognition and being able to extract OCR content from documents. That seems to be a big use case for lots of companies. Oh, well, I mean, data is king, though. Uh, as soon as you start processing documents, you can scan every piece of knowledge that's ever been uh, written down on a piece of paper and... That's what's going to be used to train the next lot of, of uh, AIs, I would think. Big Brother is coming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> AWS Amplify has launched a new online community for full-stack serverless app developers. Uh, this new community site is to provide developers building this capability an easy way to access community-generated content. Uh, site is fully open source, allowing developers to contribute blog posts, videos, sample projects, and tutorials with a simple GitHub pull request. Uh, and if you're interested in hosting an Amplify event or meetup in your area, they'll even send you swag uh, from the community to have at your event, uh, as well as presentation templates and some Amazon credits. Uh, you can find this at amplify.aws community. Uh, and if you're doing a lot of things in the serverless Amplify space, this is a great resource for you. We should do that. Yeah, do an event. Yeah, because I mean, I feel like I'm never going to get a chance to look at it unless unless there's an actual event to go to, and then I can book some time on the calendar and make it happen. I'm sure that there's something at the loft in San Francisco. Uh, the advantage of being in San Francisco or any place that has an Amazon loft is that their schedule always has interesting content to go check out. All right, back to Azure. Uh, they have partnered with the community to make uh, Kubernetes easier with a new Kubernetes-based event-driven auto-scaling solution, which they're calling Kida. Uh, event-driven auto-scaling features uh, allow you to basically deploy containers based on event uh, or Azure function coming into the system. Uh, this allows you to either run the Azure function on top of AKS or in the Azure function system on its own uh, and overlay simplifies the entire model for building out event-driven systems for Kubernetes. Imagine having auto-scaling infrastructure. <laughs> I'll just, just check my calendar here. What year is this now? <laughs> Scaling based on events instead of what, like change approval <laughs> process from the from the board? I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's very sim- This is very similar to what uh, Google did with Cloud Run, right? Where you're basically taking an event function that would typically go into a Lambda thing, and instead of having it run in Lambda, you can now have it run inside Kubernetes. Um, and so both Amazon or both Azure and Google have both done this now, um, which tells you that there's something there around being able to rapidly fire up containers based on events coming in from an application. 
But you know, it. Why do you need to run this on Kubernetes? That's part that I still don't quite understand. I think they need to work on their marketing a little bit. It's, uh, if they phrase it slightly differently, uh, it maybe make make a bit more sense. I don't know. Yeah, potentially. Uh, they, this isn't all they did with Kubernetes this week, though. They also released uh, serverless Kubernetes, uh, which is basically the ability to run containers <laughs> oh, without <God>. servers. <laughs> what? So this is uh, this is Fargate for Kubernetes, right, okay. but on uh, but from Azure, <laughs> and then they also have added uh, to Azure DevOps uh, accelerated containerized development around DevSpaces and Azure pipelines, uh, and this allows you for multiple teams to be able to build and manage Kubernetes clusters and cluster builds, and then additional security now to handle Azure policies across all of your Kubernetes pods and clusters from a centralized location. Tie to Active Directory if you want to tie your Kubernetes system to Active Directory. That wasn't that management from a central location a feature that Google just put into Kubernetes like three weeks ago. <laughs> well, I mean that's the advantage of when you use when you, you yeah. know all this stuff is based on open source technology. You can now you know very rapidly adopt it in your platform as well. Definitely. And the, all the platforms look really similar. Oh yeah. Which is great, right? Just feature parity makes it easy to do cost analysis. You end up with good cost parity. Yeah, I feel like all roads as much as much as people complain about. Kubernetes. I feel like all roads are eventually going to lead back to Kubernetes. I having a conversation this afternoon about how to ensure that the um, Docker images that are running in your container system uh, are the right ones and ones that are approved and everything. And you know, Fargate is very difficult to to um, to solve that for. And ECS, you can solve it with external tooling. And I was thinking, well, just think if you sign the image and then do some kind of verification. I'm like, oh, Kubernetes already does that. That's why we didn't implement it because it required this whole PKI infrastructure which nobody had time to build. So it's like. Eventually, everyone's going to be using Kubernetes. Think of all the things we do with containers. It looks a whole lot like the things we did with VMs, um, but uh, it's too easy to turn VMs into stateful uh, pets. And you're just with containers, you're just forced down that model of uh, of cattle and codifying all of everything and handling your environments correctly. And um, it's 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 a shift left of of that process. You say that, but I, I think I've literally been reached out to by two or three vendors who have been trying to pitch me on uh, stateful storage solutions for Kubernetes <laughs> so we can make them more like VMs in the long term. Definitely we need stateful storage, but yeah, we don't want to use it so that we could SSH into our container and uh, run a uh, backup engine. To... <laughs> <laughs> you know, somebody somewhere has asked for that. <laughs> yeah. You know, you were you were mentioning AKS and Kubernetes from Google being very much a feature parity. I wish I wish we could say that about EKS. EKS is way behind where these two guys are at this point. Yeah, but that's right. They're forced. They're pretty much right now. Their their product roadmap is is forced to get to feature parity. Oh, I I think it has to. Yeah. But I I don't know when that's going to happen. And you know, they're still doing a lot. They still haven't delivered Fargate for EKS yet. They haven't delivered. A bunch of EKS capabilities that came out in 1.12 and 1.13. I mean, they now support that as your at your uh, Kubernetes uh, backplane, but you know, they don't have all the features that you need yet. And then let's talk about uh, our good friends at GitHub. So, of course, this being a developer build conference, the GitHub team and Azure, have, of course, have a lot of announcements. And so the first one is that uh, it's been less than a year since Microsoft bought GitHub, but they've delivered over 100 new features in the last six months. Uh, GitHub and Azure DevOps are now tightly integrated and provide you an end-to-end -end experience for development teams to easily collaborate, build, and release code to Azure, on-premises, or other clouds. 
they have now unified the pipelines between Azure pipelines and GitHub. And so now you have a single YAML definition that you can use for declarative uh, pipelines and CI. And then they also have now a tight integration with Kubernetes, of course. So uh, pipelines and AKS are now integrated and tied directly into the GitHub workflow. And now you can also purchase uh, your GitHub items uh, with your Visual Studio licenses. Uh, so much simpler now to purchase uh, GitHub Enterprise if you're using that. And they also have simplified the purchasing of your Azure DevOps capabilities with their artifact solution now moving to a consumption-based processing model versus a per-user-based licensing model. Mm-hmm. So lots of announcements around GitHub and Azure DevOps uh, and how they're going to be integrated. Uh, you can now also, GitHub now also supports Active Directory as an authentication source. And you can also use uh, your GitHub account to now integrate and log into your your Azure console. So lots of interesting things happening around the GitHub uh, Azure space. You think they'll actually bring GitHub in as a as your service, kind of bring it into the fold? That's what they're doing here with this DevOps, Azure DevOps announcements basically is they're they're pulling GitHub into Azure DevOps as their back end for you know the DevOps solutioning basically. Yeah. We're just so rebranded. I mean I'm so disappointed I didn't get into the act the actions program yet. That's still not been released yeah i don't i don't know what's up with actions and why it's taking so long to get access to it for people but uh, hopefully they'll ga that at some point it fell behind ad integration <laughs> that's right and tying <laughs> it to your and tying it to your visual studio subscription that's right uh, so all, all very important things for enterprises that are u- definitely using this it, it definitely changes the conversation a lot from you know hey we're gonna use this third-party thing called github enterprise versus using TFS, and now it's like, well, they're all the same thing, so it's it's all going to be fine in the long run. I'm actually really just impressed that they've released 100 new features in the last six months. I mean, that's a tremendous improvement in velocity from the GitHub team um, on just features. I mean, I don't know what all those features are, but it's good to see innovation happening with GitHub, which felt kind of stale maybe a year and a half to two years ago. What if they were already on the roadmap before Microsoft got involved, though? I mean, it, how many images? Obviously, the AD integrations; those are driven by Microsoft. Well, I mean, I'm sure they had a very large backlog, but you know, the thing that Microsoft brought to the table was resources. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's very possible that these are all really great ideas that they already had. They just didn't have the people to deliver them, and now they have you know infinite money to spend to make this product awesome. Yeah. It'd be nice if we upgrade to a, a more recent version of GitHub to actually take advantage of them. But, <laughs> <laughs> those are those are other problems that you have to deal with. Uh, and our final new news item: Google has announced a new partnership with ServiceNow to enable the intelligent digital workflow, uh, whatever that means. This is an integration with Snow IT Operations Manager integrating into Google Cloud, and so they're basically going to be able to uh, use service discovery, service mapping, and their CMDB to track your Google assets. Uh, it ties into the Google Deployment Manager, which is their kind of thing like CloudFormation uh, that will launch later this summer. And then this, uh, according to Pablo Stern, our collaboration with Google Cloud will help customers optimize their investments while leveraging Google Cloud's global infrastructure. Ultimately, we're taking a big step forward on our shared goal of helping enterprises navigate digital transformation while simplifying and streamlining the critical work of IT. They also are announcing uh, Google Cloud and AI ML integrations coming to Snow. So not only is this uh, they're going to be reaching into Google Cloud. But they're also going to have some of the auto ML and some of the AI capabilities available to you in the ServiceNow console uh, starting this fall. So that's also nice too. Is this just uh, deploying more features to Google Cloud? I was kind of unclear on exactly like what's actually changing here. Nothing's changing from the first part, which is just they're going to be able to discover Google Cloud resources and put them into their CMDB solution, which is called ITOM. So that's the first part. The second part is that they are going to leverage Google's machine learning AI technology inside ServiceNow to deliver features to all their customers. It's nothing about them moving ServiceNow infrastructure to Google, for sure, but this is this is all about integrations between the two products. Yeah, okay. 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of people use ServiceNow right now sort of as a front end to provision, uh, to take requests to provision their specific uh, cloud offerings. And we've seen a lot of uh, ServiceNow integration with AWS in the past. And so I, uh, this looks like a, uh, uh, I don't know if there's a, I don't know what kind of direct relationship there, there is with uh, ServiceNow and AWS, but I mean, this looks much more like there's opportunity for it to be much more tightly integrated. Yeah. So, I mean, in the case of ServiceNow and Amazon, it's, you know, there's having a partnership there and they integrate and you can use um, Amazon's service catalog can be fronted by ServiceNow and tightly coupled together. So you have that advantage. Um, this this is actually interesting though more because they're actually committing to using Google technology to feed their platform, which I think is interesting. Where I don't think they've done that with, with Amazon specifically, but I I wouldn't necessarily be surprised to hear that Snow runs most of their infrastructure on Amazon. All right, and that's it for the new news. Let's go on to lightning round, Peter. Awesome. All right, we've got uh, what, about ten fun things that didn't make the big list today, so we'll burn through these and see if anybody has anything to say. First, Amazon is. Uh, Managed blockchain now GA in US East. Only a single region, so you only have to have one uh, one single place for authenticating your transaction, Jonathan. So no distributed there either. <laughs> it's distributed between racks. Uh, AWS WAF security automations now support log analysis. This is actually really great. So machine learning in your WAF is, makes sense because if you see... You know, this host, you know, basically pinging you over and over again, trying to brute force your your server. Now you can analyze that in logs, detect it with an event, and then fire that off into WAF and now block them automatically. That's just a really great feature. Yeah. You think, Isn't it, you think... It's like fail to ban on the edge. Yeah. <laughs> Will it ever be able to act fast enough, though, to, to, to spot something before it happens? I mean, you can, you can certainly stop it from happening several times, but... Uh, we think it'll ever be smart enough to, to actually see something that looks abnormal enough to stop it before it ever makes it to the app. Minority Report. Yeah. We'll gone. see. AWS Certificate Manager Private Certificate Authority increases the certificate limit to $1 million. $1 million. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that's how much it's going to cost you per month. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's not cheap. Well, it, it only costs you 0. 0.001 for every every private certificate above 10,000. So maybe this is someone saying, "Look, if I can only put 10,000 certificates in, it costs me 35 cents per, you know, per certificate. Where now it only costs me, you know, basically 100th of a penny to have the same thing." I guess that's a win for them. Yeah. AWS serverless application model supports IAM permissions and custom responses for Amazon API Gateway. Come on, we got to have a serverless comment. I wish I understood Sam better, and we should we should get someone who uses Sam on a daily basis to come talk to us about how awesome it is uh, on the podcast here, because they're doing a lot of investment in this space, and I just I I'm sure it's all very valuable, but I don't understand the problem statement. I, I used it to deploy some lambda, well, obviously lambda functions, because it's for because it's for service deployments, but. Uh, I, I don't I don't find it any easier, honestly, than just writing a piece of Terraform or just using CloudFormation as it was. I mean, there, there are some little shortcuts, I guess, where you can say, you know, please trigger me based on this event from this bucket. But all in all, I, I find the the SAM the SAM configuration language to be a little harder to um, to do as code. I mean, it's great if you want to learn the service to play around with, but uh, I don't I don't I don't see people using using SAM for like mass deployments of, of services. It's like a, a learning tool, maybe. Yeah, well, we'll see if we can find a guest. All right, Red Hat introduces a new logo 
ahead of the IBM acquisition. The part that I find the most awful about this article is that the they took the time to say the brand ambassadors had reached out to one of their employees to tattoo this on themselves, this new logo. And you know they mentioned that this is a very common thing that happens at Red Hat where people who work there tattoo the logo onto themselves. And I'm thinking, well, so all the people who have the old logo now have a tattoo that doesn't make any sense based on the new logo? And do you really want to have this much brand loyalty to your employer? It's a little interesting. That's funny. It's, it, I always thought that the Red Hat logo reminded me of like the neighborhood watch signs that you see driving down the street. And uh, every time I drive past them, I think, do criminals really wear fedoras? <laughs> like, <laughs> See, I, so what I assumed was that Red Hat was just Carmen Sandiego's evil brother. <laughs> <laughs> Ding. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> I, I just loved the quote. The company's research showed that, in fact, many people considered it to be secretive, sinister, or sneaky. <laughs> All right, uh, Amazon FSX for Windows File Server adds support for CloudWatch metrics. Should have been in there out of the box. It should have been there. But this is the fastest turnaround from the time I heard it come from the mouth of an Amazon employee to when it got shipped. Is they literally were in my office telling me about this is coming in the next day or so, and then literally the same day it dropped. It was literally like a three-hour gap between when he said it was coming and when it actually shipped. So I was uh, I was awesome. impressed that this actually it was nice nice touch. Nice. <laughs> AWS Fargate PV 1.3 now supports the Splunk log driver. Because when you want to use something as awesome as Fargate to have serverless containers, you now want to send those logs to the biggest server you can on the X1 Splunk servers that you run. No, I'm checked out now. You already dinged. I'm like, no, it's just one <laughs> ding. You can get two more dings. Oh, I, I thought I thought ding was like I thought it was ding. No, 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 no way. Oh, no. oh okay. No, 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 no. no, no. I, I want to do it then. AWS Fargate PV 1.3 now supports the Splunk log driver. I still don't have anything to say. <laughs> He's like. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm still going with the fact that it's it's funny to me that a thing that has no servers requires now a massive server to handle its logs. Yes, well, that could be so. could be the uh, Splunk as a service that it's going to. Yeah, you know how many times Splunk has tried to do a SaaS product and fails. <laughs> I think they're on their third iteration. So yeah, I'll see about that. I just love that if you want two copies of the data, you pay double for the yeah. interest. Like really. Yeah. Uh, Amazon EMR announces support for reconfiguring applications on running clusters. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, is, is that like changing the engine oil while the engine's still running? I'm, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think it's while, while there's a job running, right? But you just don't have to lose the cluster and re-spin up the cluster. I mean, wouldn't this sort of be the equivalent of you're calculating pi and then you change the computer up from underneath the calculation and, you know, it isn't now, it's no longer a valid thing? Like, how do you take a running EMR job that's taking, you know, millions of data sets and you know, consolidating them down to some type of metric or analytics, analytics you're doing, and then you're just going to change the way it runs on the back end, and expect that that's going to still be a very highly optimized, correct answer. Like that just seems weird. No, I assume that, yeah. I assume this is because the AMI jobs are probably written in Java, and they've probably got a, a piece of junk CloudFormation or Cloud init script, which when when those instances boot up, it downloads the Java file that's passed in in a metadata or something, and starts running the um, the the app and then they never had a way of actually life cycling that out and stopping it and bringing a new one in without killing the machine so maybe maybe they've just put a bit of um, orchestration in place that can stop the um, stop the process and download some new stuff hmm. okay. I got no idea 
Amazon ECS console support for ECS optimized Amazon Linux 2 AMI and Amazon EC2 A1 instance family now available. So the first part, the Amazon Linux 2 AMI, about time. And then the second part, I didn't, I mean, do you really want to run ARM-based containers? Like, that's pretty early edge. That's, I mean, like the fact that they've had Amazon Linux 2 waiting on the roadmap for over a year and a half to already have ARM out is just fascinating to me. That's just the beauty of Linux, though. Yeah, you've got a new CPU, let's just build build the whole kernel, build the whole suite for another platform. It's It just it shows how good the platform is. I hope that this is because some people were demanding it with ARM coming out and being a big deal, but definitely uh, a little bit weird uh, that they took so long on one and then the other one is basically, it's available now. Have a good time. That's all we got. I only heard one ding. Justin. That's because you made Jonathan. You, you I made, uh, I'm getting I'm spirited Jonathan. I know, I know. Sorry. <laughs> uh, Carmen Sandiego wins it again. All right, let's move on to Cool Tools with Jonathan. Well, today in the Cool Tools, I have a special guest, Justin Broadley, <laughs> to talk about <laughs> the new VS Code remote development feature. Yes, thank you. Uh, so I appreciate that you let me hijack your own segment. <laughs> uh, so I don't know about you guys, but uh, my, my primary editor for code is typically Vim. But when I do want a GUI editor, I typically have gone to something like Sublime Text, uh, as my go-to, but I've always kind of had on my computer Visual Studio Code, which is Microsoft's uh, version of a very lightweight VS editor uh, that I've had, and I've played with it on and off, and it's it's been pretty good, and it's been catching up over time, has really great Terraform providers and a couple of things, but uh, on the 2nd of May, they announced this new feature, which I think is fantastic, and so I've been playing with it a lot in the last week and a half here. Uh, so this is the new remote development with VS Code feature. This allows you to do one of three things. Uh, first of all, if you want to develop your code inside of a container running on your machine, this now will take your Visual Studio code and connect it directly to that container. Um, so it'll synchronize your GitHub repo directly with the container, allow you to test it and run there. And this is fantastic for those of us who are in the Ruby world who used to have to fight Ruby versioning. <laughs> so now you just have a container running whatever Ruby version you want to run. You have your code synchronized directly to there, and you just run it in the container, which is fantastic. So this is what got me really excited, first of all. And then uh, the next part of it is you can actually now do the same thing with SSH. So if you want to have a server on Amazon running with SSH protocol open to your dev box, it does the exact same thing it does for containers, but with SSH protocol. And so it'll keep it synchronized with all your changes to local files. You can do your builds. Your build will run directly on an Amazon server in the cloud or Google server or an Azure server. Uh, and this is just really powerful, really awesome stuff. Um, the third feature it has, I don't really care about because it relates to Windows servers, which is the new Windows subsystem for Linux. Um, it'll basically execute any code you're doing on a Windows box in the WSL Linux kernel directly, uh, which is nice if you are using Windows, uh, but I don't, so I don't care about that one. But the other two I'm super excited about, and I've been using them a lot in the last week or so, and this is in the insider build of Visual Studio Code, expected to be released hopefully in the next few months in the main build branch, but if you're looking for this or if this sounds really cool, you want to play with it, or you haven't checked out Visual Studio Code, uh, I would highly recommend playing with it for these two features alone because these are really great. Excellent. It's, it's on my list of things. I'm, I'm kind of hovering over the link to download it, and I just haven't quite gotten around to do it yet. Yeah, we spent a ton of time helping integrate, um, I think it was PyCharm, with, uh, to, to be able to uh, do similar activities you were just describing with developing and testing in containers for developers. 
And this sounds like it worked right out of the box for you, which is awesome. Oh yeah, it was. It was. You know, you had to follow a little bit of the You know, the the guide. It's not quite as intuitive as it could be, but that's that's what's effective with a, a brand new feature like this. But um, once you kind of figure out how it works, and you know, basically you add a folder in for your Docker, uh, your Docker build, uh, how you want the Docker container to look. You put that into the directory structure and you and you launch it and it just works. It's it's pretty awesome. Um, it doesn't support Alpine Linux yet, uh, which is kind of a bummer. But uh, if you don't need that, at least uh, I assume they'll get fixed by the time they GA this feature. But for right now, it's not there. That's cool. I have the same problem with Python as, as you did with Ruby. Yep. Oh yeah, it, it's 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 not a new yeah. thing. Um, I just remember it the most in Ruby because that's when I used to do a lot of coding and I don't do a lot of coding now. Um, so why I guess I know this is a problem in Python. It's not quite as close to my heart as it is to yours. No, and in fact, Red Hat, um, new Red Hat version, they're going to pull Python out uh, of the OS completely, so that it's uh, it doesn't get the system the system Python doesn't get in the way of um, installing Python by package. Yeah. That's actually a really nice. I wish the Macs would do yep. that too, because I think the Python version on the Mac is particularly an old version of two. And then if you want to install three or a newer version of two, it's kind of a pain. Yeah. I mean, Macs have got the. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I mean at least you have Pi, you have Pi Env, which I, there's Ruby Env now. Uh, but it wasn't really a big thing back then. We had RVM, RVM. was kind of the way you yeah. Assume, yeah. We, and like you know, the, anytime you corrupted your RVM configuration because you did something dumb, it just was awful. To <laughs> do oh, no. I've, I've literally <laughs> reinstalled macOS because I've <laughs> critically destroyed some key components with, uh, with making mistakes, making mistakes with uh, like Python installs and things. So, and I, it's a little bit heretical to be a Linux guy who who likes Java and these things and said you know use a Microsoft product to do coding. But I, I will give them props. This Visual Studio Code has been really quite good uh since it launched uh, a couple of years ago um and there's definitely been some times where i've used it for specific functions because they had a better linter built into the plugins extension than i could get on some blog oh, cool so visual studio yeah. has been good for, for such a long time though i mean i i uh, i still have my msdn like <laughs> subscription cds from about the year 2000 and visual i'm mm-hmm. a bit running visual studio 6 from there and and um like like um Autocomplete for things, and uh, yeah, it's, it's it's always been it's always been a good product. But it's always so bloated. That was the problem um, when you ran it on a Windows box. You know, even the new versions they were so big. And there's even a Visual Studio now for Mac out there too. Uh, and I played with it when it was an early beta after they bought um, Xamarin, I think it was. Uh, they basically built that out. But uh, the Visual Studio Code is just, it's so lightweight, it's so fast. I just, I don't recommend going with the full Visual Studio if you don't have to. Well, the VS Code does I, I, I assume it's primarily an editor versus uh, like a fully integrated build environment kind of thing. That's true. It's more of an editor. Um, it does do builds and, so, you know, lightweight builds for like Python and stuff like that. But yeah, it's not going to give you the full .NET uh, experience that you might be looking for. Uh, if you're doing you know, heavy duty Windows app development, that kind of stuff it doesn't work. But anything web development wise or you know compile on run type stuff works just fine. Does it work with uh, Windows containers or just Linux containers? You know, I as much as I love Windows containers, which I don't, <laughs> uh, I did not test that feature. I do, I do believe it does, uh, but it, it's not something I was trying to play with, so I didn't try it. Cool. I, mean, I, 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 I use it with a, you know, there, there's a sample. You have a bunch of hello worlds for the Docker containers. You can, you know, uh, get pull the repo and, and play with it. Uh, and that is, I think there is a couple .NET ones that are on Windows, but I just did the GoLang. Well, fantastic. Uh, that's it for this week. We will be back next week with another exciting show, and uh, we will sign off here. And that is The Week in Cloud. 
We'd like to thank our sponsors, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe today on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. What is that noise in the background? It sounds like a schoolyard with a child. Doesn't it? Yelling. Someone just came in the yeah. building. Have you been to our office? I can't remember. So it's a building and then it's got a huge atrium with like common area. So people must have just walked in downstairs and are gathering down there. I think this is bad. You should have been here at our first office. It had, it had a pebble stone hallway and workers would roll hard wheel carts.